Crypto Report is a weekly public affairs program providing independent media coverage of environmental and ecological studies with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events in order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. Eco Report is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana and financially supported by listeners like you. Eco Report for WFHB, I'm David Lyman. And I'm Jennifer Brooks, opening today's show with local energy-related news. In many cases, a weatherized home means a more energy-efficient home. A more energy-efficient home means spending less on energy bills. But many people aren't sure where to begin with conserving energy at home. That's where the Monroe County Energy Challenge and South Central Community Action Program hope their mobile energy lab will come in. The Mobile Energy Lab is a former SCCAP Head Start bus, according to a press release from the city. But after a team of AmeriCorps members and local volunteers spent four weeks working on it, it has been painted, redesigned, and outfitted with energy-themed interactive activities. The activities are intended to display simple ways to conserve energy, different sources of renewable energy, and how energy use can be managed on a personal level, Included among the activities is a solar model car racetrack, solar panel exhibits, and a working wind turbine. The Mobile Energy Lab was funded by an Indiana Housing and Community Development Authority and Innovation Grant and will make periodic appearances at upcoming community events. On July 4th, the bus will be featured in the Bloomington 4th of July Parade. The bus will also be available at local weatherization blitzes, schools, and businesses, according to the press release, and can be brought into your neighborhood or upcoming event by request. For more information about the Mobile Energy Lab, or to see a calendar of upcoming appearances, visit mocoenergychallenge.com. Meanwhile, nationally, the natural gas industry, desperate to halt the progress of renewable energy and fight grassroots environmentalists, has started a new front group called Your Energy America. The group is a creation of the American Gas Association, a trade and lobbying organization representing some of the country's largest gas companies and utilities. According to the environmental news site EcoWatch, The purpose of the front group is to promote natural gas and pipeline infrastructure and to portray fossil fuel opponents as, quote, anti-energy extremists, unquote. Your Energy America portrays itself as a grassroots citizen organization. It describes what are actually public relations campaigns paid for by a major industry association as created to counter what it calls the simplistic belief that keeping fossil fuels in the ground is the only answer to climate change. The group holds that view is false and harmful to our quality of life, economy, and energy security. Despite President Donald Trump's pulling the U.S. out of the Paris Climate Accord, China and California have signed an agreement to work together on reducing emissions. California Governor Jerry Brown signed a non-binding agreement with China to cooperate on green technology, including zero emissions vehicles, 
and lower greenhouse gas emissions. An unusual formal meeting between an American governor and the Chinese president, Brown and President Xi Jinping discuss the importance of expanding cooperation of green technology, innovation, and trade, according to the governor's office. Brown said that Trump's decision to pull the U.S. out of the Paris Agreement will eventually prove to be a temporary setback, and that China, European countries, and individual U.S. states will fill the leadership void left by the federal government. Brown told reporters in Beijing, quote, "Nobody can stay on the sidelines. We can't afford any dropouts in the tremendous human challenge to make the transition to a sustainable future." End quote. Without mentioning Trump by name, Brown told attendees at a forum on electric vehicles that there are still people in powerful places who are resisting reality, who are resisting the obvious science that we know governs our lives. The Chinese science and technology minister and Brown signed an agreement on behalf of their respective governments, calling for greater collaboration on countering climate change. The minister did not publicly address Trump's move on the accord, which has been ratified by almost 150 countries. Due to a separate move by the Trump administration, an initiative aimed at improving the water quality of our Great Lakes is in jeopardy. The Great Lakes are heavily polluted with industrial waste. The Great Lakes Restoration Initiative, led by EPA, is a major source of funding for their cleanup. Although Congress funded the initiative through 2021, the Trump administration's 2018 budget would cut funding to the EPA and eliminate the program. If the initiative is completely defunded, cleanups in eight states would come to an end. Among other things, that would mean a halt to reducing contamination of the Grand Calumet River in Indiana. In all, the initiative, launched in 2010, has funded over 3,000 projects to eliminate contaminants, prevent invasive species, reduce runoff, clean up contaminated sediments, restore watersheds, build green infrastructure, and restore habitats. The Brookings Institution says that the restoring the Great Lakes would result in at least $50 billion in direct economic benefits from increased tourism, recreation. Increased property values and business enterprises. Thanks, David. Moving on to environmental activism in the news this week, there's been a ruling in the pending Standing Rock Sioux Tribes case challenging the the legality of the Dakota Access Pipeline. On June 14th, a Washington D.C. District Court judge ruled that the Trump administration must pursue an extensive environmental review of the Dakota Access Pipeline. The ruling represents a limited win for the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe and others who've been fighting the pipeline. Soon after taking office, President Trump gave a green light to the project. The judge agreed with the tribes that the Army Corps of Engineers quote did not adequately consider the impacts of an oil spill on fishing rights, human rights, or environmental justice unquote. The judge wrote that the Corps' decision allowing the pipeline to cross under the Missouri River, half a mile upstream from the Standing Rock Reservation, neglected to discuss the evidence of risk that the tribe had submitted. He didn't rule on whether the flow of oil through the pipeline, which began on June 1st, should be halted, as the tribes have argued. The same Standing Rock Sioux tribe has just been awarded the inaugural Henry A. Wallace Award. The tribe received the award and a $250,000 prize for its nonviolent struggle against the pipeline and its dedication to renewable energy. 
the Wallace Global Fund made the award, which includes an investment of up to $1 million to support the tribe's transition to fossil fuel independence. The Wallace Global Fund established the Henry A. Wallace Award this year to honor the courage and will it takes to combat oppressive corporate and political power. Henry A. Wallace was a progressive who served as vice president under President Franklin D. Roosevelt. According to Scott Wallace, co-chair of the Wallace Global Fund, quote, this award is intended to recognize the type of extraordinary courage that ordinary people can summon to fight abuses of power. No one represents such courage better than the Standing Rock Sioux tribe. Finally, residents of Michigan are again standing up for environmental justice. Detroit residents, community groups, and Wayne County, Michigan officials are resisting the expansion of a hazardous waste facility in the city. The facility, which has been operating at the site for over 40 years, collects and treats hazardous and non-hazardous liquids and solids obtained from other spots. If the Michigan Department of Environmental Quality issues a permit for expansion, the company would be able to increase its waste capacity from 64,000 to almost 666,000 gallons. Opponents of the plan say it poses a health risk to an area that's already dealing with poverty and illness. In neighborhoods near the facility, 65% of residents are people of color, 81% live below the poverty level, and 31% are children. Traditionally, hazardous waste facilities have been located disproportionately in poor communities with people of color who don't have political clout to fend off those facilities. And that's the news for this week. For Eco Report on WFHB, I'm Jennifer Brooks. And I'm David Lyman. We love to hear from our listeners. Contact us about stories we've aired or if you have ideas for future stories. Please send emails to earth at wfhb.org. speaks with Indiana University professor Ellen Ketterson, who is part of a team of faculty working to develop plans for responding to climate change in Indiana. Last month, IU announced it would invest $55 million in the project as part of the university's Grand Challenges program. This is the first part of a two-part interview with Ketterson. Part two will air next week on EcoReport. This is Norm Hawley for WFHB, and today I'm interviewing uh, Professor Ellen Ketterson. She's a distinguished professor in biology, and she's going to talk about uh, an opportunity to explore climate change and its impact upon Indiana. So could you uh, please describe briefly the, uh, the nature of your opportunity? The Indiana University established a program to promote interdisciplinary research that would address society's grand problems. And they encouraged faculty to form alliances that crossed over specific disciplines to create groups with sufficient expertise to meet that charge of 
using in university research and facilities to address societal problems that matter. And in the first competition, which wasn't the one that was just announced, but a year ago, they selected the first group for that purpose. And that one is known as the Grand Challenge Initiative Precision Medicine. And that is centered largely at the IU Medical School. And they were very specific about their deliverables. It was to cure one cancer and cure one childhood disease and make significant progress on some neurobiological disease, they hope. Now, my group, or our group, which is entitled Prepared for Environmental Change, we came in second. So we were given the opportunity to revise and reconsider and see what we had learned from our preparation of our first proposal in order to target more specifically what it was that we thought we could do for the citizens of Indiana. We think we did a good job putting together a plan for being helping Indiana be prepared for environmental change. And in doing so, uh, we formed a group that has a common vision and broad expertise. What we believe is that no one discipline uh, could have sufficient ideas that were feasible that would meet the challenge. But together, we have some very high hopes to be useful. We have three areas uh, in which we're combining our knowledge. And one is forecasting. So what's likely to happen over various periods of time with respect to climate, but not just climate, with respect to storms, with respect to diseases that are carried by, say, ticks and mosquitoes that can infect people, and that the organisms like the ticks and mosquitoes will respond to environmental change, and that will increase our exposure to diseases that were not so common in the past. So obviously, like West Nile or uh, Lyme disease, or for our agricultural situation, uh, avian flu. So the forecasting is about the climate, but it's also about the nature, pollinators that serve us, and uh, insects that challenge us, and knowing more specifically the where and when that those plants and animals will change their geographic distributions or their abundance. And that's natural science. So number one, natural science. Number two, I'm going to mention social science, and number three, I'm going to mention communication. So turning to the social science, I think we believe that the forecasts alone are necessary but they're not sufficient to reduce negative impacts and enhance opportunities. And that means working with government, working with businesses, working with industry, working with non-governmental organizations, nonprofits, and individuals so that they can take this knowledge about forecasting the future and make good use of it. So the social science has been a real opportunity for me to learn. Uh, how do city councils work together to prepare for places that may in the future be suitable for corridors, for a safe place for wildlife, as opposed to places that are currently 
safe places for wildlife. You can't just um, write regulations to preserve for the present. Uh, you need to anticipate what will be effective if your goal is preservation in the future. And I think all along we're trying to address simultaneously preservation and prosperity. I'm just curious, are you actually going to have an advocate role in terms of dealing with the community governments uh, in terms of encouraging them to create these pathways that migrations can follow and other things that would um, preserve species? I would say yes to everything you said, except I'm not exactly sure just what you mean by advocacy. So what we would do is provide the information about where a good place for a corridor would be, and then maybe working with the law school, provide a new mechanism for preservation that was beneficial to the individuals who have rights in the land and also beneficial to the wildlife. So if there were tax considerations that made it easier for landowners to both preserve and prosper, uh, that's the kind of ideas that we would hope to be presenting uh, at the state level, at the community level, and, you know, over time uh, nationally. But our initial information about environmental change will tend to be Midwest-focused, and so the solutions uh, are likely to be Midwest-focused as well. I know your expertise is, uh, at least in part, on birds and flowers and migrations. So give me a, an example of things that uh, where migrations have occurred due to climate. So how capable are songbirds and other animals that pay attention to seasonal cues? Uh, how flexible are they in their reproduction? the timing of their reproduction or the timing of their migration. So some of those studies can be done in, uh, on captive animals. You can bring them in and alter the temperature or alter the food availability and see what um, proxies for reproduction and, and migration they display under different environmental conditions. We can also study them now in the field because there's so much new technology. So for a bird is small as the bird I study, the snowbird or the junco, you can put tiny little transmitters on them and they can go out, live their lives, make a migration or not, come back and you can capture their again and remove the tag and find out where they've been and when. If we now add that songbirds carry ticks and that some of the songbirds that winter down in the tropics with ticks that they picked up there. Then we have in one study system both the benefits of preserving animals like birds that give us great pleasure and perform some ecological services like seeds need dispersing, but also are capable of uh, transporting uh, organisms that could provide a challenge to human beings. All of that is in one package when you study in the field and in captivity, an organism that until recently the technology would not allow and until the Grand Challenge initiative came along wouldn't have people from the engineering school working with people from the biology school to address the same problem.
Echo Report is currently seeking volunteer journalists to contribute short weekly headlines about ecological issues, from indigenous resistance to infrastructure projects to climate change and biological diversity. Commitment is light, and you can set your own schedule. For, in for more information, email us at earth at wfhb.org or call 812-323-1200. It's time now for In Nature, a segment focusing on the flora and fauna of South Central Indiana. This is Norm Hawley for WFHB, and today I'm interviewing uh, Professor Ellen Cutters. This is In Nature. The American toad, Anaxurus americanus, is from two to three and a half inches long and lives near permanent or semi-permanent shallow bodies of water, which it needs in order to breed. Their color varies from yellow to red to black and can change according to humidity, stress, or temperature. In the fall, the toad digs itself under loose forest soil using its back feet and hibernates until warm weather comes. After a warm rain in May or June, one may see an exodus of toads hopping from high ground down to the water. The males will sing their high-pitched trill, attracting females and often other males. While mating, the smaller males will attempt to hold on to the female with his front legs. And once she has laid her 7,000 or so eggs, he will fertilize them. At times, there may be more than one male attempting to mate with a female. The pond in spring is a sexual cauldron, with toads trilling, mating, bubbling, and floundering in the water. Afterwards, long strings of toad eggs appear. The tadpoles will hatch, and within a month will develop legs and lungs and emerge onto dry land. They stay near the water for a short time and then leave for higher ground. Toads, unlike frogs, do not need to stay close to water. The American toad has a paratoid gland on the back just behind the eyes. The gland excretes bufotoxin, a mild poisonous substance that can irritate the skin of humans. It can be fatal to small dogs if the frog is eaten or licked. The toad's diet consists of small insects, other arthropods, worms, and small invertebrates. You've been listening to In Nature. And now for our weekly events calendar. The Indiana Forest Alliance's annual gathering known as Toast to the Trees will take place on Saturday, June 24th from 5 to 9 p.m. at 4830 Dove Hill Lane in Nashville, Indiana. An evening of music, food, drink, and inspiration is planned for your enjoyment. Joan Malouf, the founder of Old Growth Forest Network, will be the featured speaker. To RSVP, call 317-602-3692 or email Paul Bryan at paul at indianaforestalliance.org. There is a charge to attend this event. The Indiana Audubon Society is hosting a Hemlock Cliffs summer birding field trip on Saturday, June 24th from 9 to 11 a.m. at Hemlock Cliffs in English, Indiana. The deep woods of surrounding Hemlock Cliffs provide an assortment of forest birds, including oven birds, worm-eating warblers, scarlet tanagers, and much more. The trails can be slippery and involve stairs or tight crevices. Participants must pre-register, and it's free for IAS members. For questions and directions, email birdindiana at gmail.com or call 765-827-5109. A Creek Stomp event is scheduled at McCormick's Creek State Park on Sunday, June 25th from 2 to 2.45 p.m. 
Join a naturalist to tromp through the creek looking for bugs and other signs that tell you how clean or dirty the water is. Meet at the Canyon Inn. Are you interested in lowering carbon emissions through transportation? The Transportation Working Group is having a meeting on Monday, June 26, from 2.30 to 3.30 p.m. at E-House, located at 704 East 10th Street in Bloomington. Participants are encouraged to bring their thoughts and input. The group aims to provide and improve alternative transportation solutions on IU's campus, such as walking, bus systems, biking, and more. There will be a herp hunt at Spring Mill State Park on Friday, June 30th, from 2 to 2.45 p.m. A herp is a reptile or amphibian. Learn about these cold-blooded friends as you look for Spring Mill's resident reptiles and amphibians. Meet Molly at the Lakeview Activity Center. That wraps up our show for this week. Eco Report is brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812-334-4003 and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com. This week's news stories were written by Lindsay Jones, Linda Green, and Norm Holy. The feature was produced by Norm Holy and edited by Joe Crawford. Rebecca Mueller edited the script. Juliana Daly compiled our events calendar. Our engineer is Sarah Vaughn. Executive producer is Joe Crawford. For WFHB, I'm David Lyman. And I'm Jennifer Brooks. Join us on Thursdays at 11.30 a.m. before Democracy Now! and on Fridays at 5 p.m. before KiteLine for our weekly radio rundown of ecological news and resistance. Until then, Eco Report encourages you to take direct action to defend the Earth. You've been listening to The Eco Report. A volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB. In Bloomington, Indiana. Available for download and podcast at news.wfhb.org. Eco Report is your independent, ecologically inspired news source. For South Central Indiana. Bringing you news that the Earth wants you to hear. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Eco Report staff. The email address is earth at wfhb.org. That's earth at wfhb.org. Thank you.